But there's a special, special treat today because Pastor Todd Unziker from Summit Church is going to be sharing the word and the message this morning. I'm so excited to hear him preach. I want you guys to know something about Todd. This is where Todd and I are very similar in this case. When people look at our wives and our children and see how beautiful and how cute they are, they're wondering, something doesn't fit here. <laughs> so that's why this is how we've connected, Todd and I. We've connected over this commonality. Guys, I want you to know this. Todd is... And when I was at Summit doing the residency, Todd was the campus pastor at Briar Creek, so I got to work well with Todd, and Todd is just an amazing, amazing man with a heart after God and an incredible family. So I'm so excited to hear um, Todd come and share with us, guys, but one thing in particular I want you guys to hear and really understand that Todd wants you to get is he wants you to understand the gospel. So we're so excited to hear from Todd. So Todd, thank you guys. Thank you for being here. Guys, if you guys would, welcome Todd, please. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. So thanks, Lawrence. Um, what he failed to tell you was not only do we um, bond over the fact that our wives and our kids are so cute, um, but that Doritos story is actually something else that we bond over. Um, here's what I mean by that. You have a pastor in this day and age who's proudly talking about fighting over Doritos with his children. There are many homes in America that would say you should be locked up for giving your kids Doritos, and he broadly, proudly proclaims that here today. Um, we shared a love of food. I can tell you that many of the visions and dreams that God gave for Waypoint Church were over all-you-can-eat wings with me um, back at Wild Wing uh, four or five years ago. So uh, it is great to be here this morning um, with you. I, like the Apostle Paul, I thank God for you guys every time I am here about what God is doing here uh, in and through you. Um, I do remember when this church was a dream of the Lord. And I remember when this church was something that um, God was stirring on the hearts of a few core team. And so to be here and to worship and sing Amazing Grace here this morning was um, really a gift to my soul. I can't think of anything greater um, than to, to be able to do that with you here this morning. Uh, Pastor Lawrence said, um, come, share with us and preach what is on your heart, what, um, whatever you want to preach. And so I don't know about you, but my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And so I always need to come back to the gospel. And so that's what I wanted to share with you. Share it through the lens of what God has been showing in my own life. I did not grow up a Christian. I didn't become a Christian until I was 28 years old. When um, at that time I had my dream job, um, I got paid to watch college football for a living. Not just college football, but SEC football. So I covered um, SEC football, I, I did a radio work, all this kind of things, but really on the inside, even with, with money and fame and minor celebrity status and all those things, my heart was being just eaten up. And I was constantly trying to do more to prove myself because I realized there has got to be more than simply what, what is here. And so I was always trying to do more and do more and do more. And it wasn't until September 25th, 2013, when the Lord God Almighty showed me that amazing grace for the very first time. That he said, you know what? I lived the life that you could never live. And I died the death that you deserved. And so really it was at that time and then shortly 10 months later that um, I left that dream job, so to speak, and became a missionary overseas. Um, was there for a couple years working with church planners, um, and my wife came on a mission trip. And um, she would tell you that she wasn't even a Christian when she went on this mission trip. 
that her parents begged her to come with her. God had been working in her life, and, and the mission agency gave her a Bible with one of those little old-timey gospel tracts, you know, Steps to Peace with God. And she said she got on the, the airplane to fly six hours to, to where, um, where she was going, and she said, boy, I'm going to be a missionary. I, I'm going to be the best missionary this week I can be. So I'm going to learn everything that's in this track. And she took that little old-timey gospel track and that Bible, and she started going through it and underlining in her Bible and reading the chapter before and the chapter after. And she said it was in that moment that scales fell from her eyes, and she said, God, I am a sinner, and I need you, Jesus. First person that she met when she got off the plane was me. And I explained to her that in second hesitations, it says you have to marry that person. Um, and so we got married six months later. Um, now God, um, in just his grace had us, uh, a few other places and we've been in Raleigh Durham for the past seven years. We have three, um, beautiful children, um, our daughter, Georgia, our son, JD, and our youngest son, Trey. Um, and one of the things about having three little kids that I have learned is that people are really, really passionate about immunizations. I mean like really passionate. Like you've got this group over here that's like, you know, you don't love your children if you don't get them immunized. And then over here you've got this group of parents that are like, oh my gosh, you know, that's toxic, it's terrible, you can't put that in there. I'm not going to tell you where we fall because I want you to all to love me. And so at the risk of all of you hating me, just think this, think, okay, where do I stand on this issue? Yes, that's got to be where that guy stands. But you know, when you think about an immunization, really at its crux, and those of you doctors don't like, you know, send me an email, pick me apart here, but at the crux of an immunization, the concept behind it is that you get just a tiny bit of the real disease so that you don't get the real one. You're getting a buildup of it so that you're not, uh, you're not affected by the real disease or whatever that real thing is. And here is my fear for the church. Here is my fear in my own heart is I am so afraid that we have done that with the gospel. That we get just enough of it that the real amazing power of amazing grace is not working and living through our lives. And maybe I just wondered this, even as I sang this, have we sung Amazing Grace so many times that we've forgotten the power behind the amazing grace that God gives us? In fact, the church where Martin Luther was a preacher, the great reformer, he said, that his congregation said, why do you preach the gospel to us every single week? And he said, well, when you stop forgetting the gospel every week, I'll, start, I'll stop preaching the gospel every week. So with fear and trembling, if you'll take your Bibles and turn them on to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Um, if you have a copy of God's Word and maybe you're new to this whole Christian thing, um, take heart. So was I. Um, Romans is going to be in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And then right after that will be the book of Romans we're going to look at this because I want to tell you that discovery that I went on, that journey, that what we preach at our church is simply this, that the gospel is not the way we begin, just the way we begin the Christian life, but it is the way that we grow in the Christian life. See, I always thought that the gospel was simply something you prayed. You know, that the gospel was just for lost people. Like we got to just tell the gospel to lost people and then that's it. You know, it was kind of the diving board, we say at our church, to enter into Christianity. 
But really the gospel is the pool in which we swim. It is the good news and I am in just as desperate need as good news this morning as I was the day I first believed. Because once you've experienced that, you don't move on to other things. I mean, it's not like I, I hear the gospel and I believe Jesus died for me and I say, yes, I'll follow you. I take that first step in believer's baptism and then I forget it and I start thinking about, you know, three ways to a better marriage or five financial principles that the Bible talks about. No, I keep coming back to the gospel over and over again because that's how the apostle Paul talks about the gospel. You know, for him, the gospel was not just how he began the Christian life. It's the way he grew in the Christian life. It wasn't just that diving board. It was the pool in which he swimmed. The gospel was not the ABC of the Christian life. The gospel was the A to Z of the Christian life. And that's what we'd find here in the book of Romans, starting in the 12th chapter, starting with verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, now, if you are in a habit of underlining things in your Bible, take out your pen and underline the word therefore. Anytime you see, you know, the old joke is anytime you see therefore in the Bible, you should ask yourself, what's it there for? Because really what therefore in English is always pointing backwards. So when you see that word therefore, it's going back. In fact, in the original Greek, the word therefore is the first word in this sentence. Some of your versions might have that. What is it pointing backwards? It's pointing to what? The previous 11 chapters of the Bible. See, Romans is divided into two sections. This chapter 12, verse 1, is like the pivotal hinge point here. The first 11 chapters, the original Bible was not, you know, chapters and verses. It was one long letter. And so all of this first part, this first 11, the Apostle Paul is putting forth one of the greatest theological lessons for all of us. Where he starts in chapter 1 and he explains that all of us are sinners. And that progression of sin and sin left unchecked always breeds to more sin. That sin always looks better than what it really is, always takes us farther than we want to go, and sin always leaves us in a worse place than what we thought. And it goes on, the fact of, of later chapters in 3, 4, and 5 talks about that the punishment for that sin, the punishment for that sin is death, because God is a holy God. And since he is a holy God, he cannot allow <coughs> one bit of sin. It's kind of like if you had this gourmet, five-star, I mean, like Angus Barn-style meal, right? Well, if your steak, as good as that steak had, if it like fell on the floor right by the garbage chute, and they, you know, they pick it up, we all like joke about like the three-second rule. Well, let's pretend it was like five seconds it was there. And you'd say, well, there's just a little trash on it it would never be the same again. And no matter what we did, we could never clean that up to make it seem like it fit. But what God does in his great love and his mercy, therefore, is the gospel. And so I like that the last five chapters are all the application of this. In fact, if you read the Bible, if you're a student, maybe you're new in the Bible, you're gonna start seeing this pattern often in Paul's writing where he'll start in the beginning and he'll outline the theology and then he goes later into the application. We call that orthodoxy, which is right living, and then it's followed up with orthopraxy, um, excuse me, right thinking, followed up by orthopraxy, right living. 
Paul does this all the time. The book of Ephesians, which I know you guys are studying now, the first three chapters are that theology. And then four, five, and six is how does that work out? And church, Waypoint Church, can I just tell you something? That we always must start with what God thinks. People ask me all the time, they try to play these stump the pastor grims. They'll say, well, Pastor Todd, what do you think about this? And I got just a habit of saying, you know what? It really doesn't matter what I think. What does God say? And he says here, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of service. I mean, I think that's a pretty good summary of the Christian life, right? Daily offering your body as a member of God, as a sacrifice of worship. But it happens in response to something. It's that therefore. Paul builds upon this point in verse 2. He says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Renewing of our minds in what? Renewing of our minds in what? People my age who grew up in church and youth groups and things like that, that meant that they needed to stop listening to Bon Jovi and Def Leppard and Guns N' Roses, and they started listening to like DC Talk and things like that. That was what was always told then. And those things are fine to do, but specifically, Paul says, renewing our minds in the beauties of the gospel. Or as we are renewed in the mercies of the gospel, we are transformed into the kind of person who obeys God out of the heart. You see, the preaching of the gospel is able to do what nothing else can do. It renews and it transforms the heart so that obedience comes from our desires and our delight. Right now, guys, I'm in that like weird spot with my kids because I'm teaching them disciplines. They need to learn to be polite and, and thankful and they need to learn to you know, pick up things and when we put them away and all of those disciplines. But what I want to make sure that my kids understand is their love is not contingent. The love that I have for them is not contingent upon that. And what delights daddy's heart is... Well, it'd be nice if they just listened and obeyed. But what really delights my heart is if they were to go and obey those things because of their love for me, not simply because I'm telling them to do something. And so what I think Apostle Paul here is saying, what I know that we need is to see that with change, that all of us, I don't care what brought you here this morning, but every single person in here has a desire to change. There's two ways that that can be done. One is external and one is internal. And what the amazing power of amazing grace is, is that God is the one who changes us from the inside out. God is the one who changes us. Maybe you're struggling here today and you're like, you know what, the Christian life for me is a little bit of drudgery. Pastor Todd, if I'm honest, maybe I didn't really even want to get up and and worship with the body this morning. Pastor Todd, I know I'm supposed to serve on the weekends, but frankly, I only do that because I don't want to hear somebody else telling me I should. You know what, I, I know I'm supposed to give more, I know I'm supposed to give the first fruits of my, my paycheck, but you know what, I work hard for that, that's my money. We can constantly be trying to do good works, but frankly, we will always revert back to what we know, and that's our sinful flesh. But we, therefore, when we remember the gospel, we are renewing our minds in the goodness of God. And those who remember that when they were once dead, when they were once lost, but now they see serving God becomes not a drudgery, but a delight. And that's what the apostle Paul is saying. Again, one theologian said, in order for works to be good in God's sight, they cannot be a means to anything else. They must come from the inward fount of the new man. 
Just as lovers don't need to be told what to do and to say, a truly righteous heart needs no command to be righteous. I mean, imagine if, uh, imagine if I came home on Valentine's Day. My wife, Ashley, she was sick today. She loves coming to worship here. But imagine if on Valentine's Day I walked in and I gave her, you know, a dozen roses. And she went, wow, thank you so much. And I said, no problem, I'm supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah, y'all laugh because I wouldn't get very far with that, right? But how often do we do that when we come to church on Sunday morning? How often do we do that when we're giving for the poor? How often do we do that when someone talks about, about going and living on mission or giving? The Apostle Paul says that right here, he says, do you see what Apostle Paul says? That after experiencing the gospel, our obedience becomes a reasonable act of worship. Having a hard time worshiping, it isn't because of the music or the environment or anything else. It's because of our heart is not resting on the beauties and the mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.19 is that the dwelling on the love of God for you is what produces the love of God in you. Faith in the gospel, renewing yourself in the gospel. Martin Luther said to always progress in the Christian life was to always go back in the beginning. Because righteousness is not something we achieve. Righteousness is something we receive and we receive by believing on the finished work of Christ. If you don't hear anything else I say today is rest in the fact of this, Waypoint Church. Listen to me very carefully. Jesus loves you. Jesus doesn't love you because you cleaned yourself up and you came in here today. Jesus loves you just the way you are. And he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to stay there. Whether maybe you're something you're living in just some wild, you know, unadulterated, sinful past. Or maybe you're in a spot where you're just like, you're resting on the laurels that I don't do that stuff. No matter where you come in this morning, can you know this? That when you come to Waypoint Church this morning, you heard this. That the God of the universe loves you. Rest in that. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. But saved a wretch like me. Like me. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, by the mercies of God, renew your mind in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news that Christ Jesus lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that we deserved. Here's another way I think about it. The gospel is G-O-S-P-E-L. The good news, the gospel. What is grace? What is grace? is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That means that I get all of the riches of heaven at the expense that Christ paid and did for me. We are joint heirs. And so when I think things are drudgery for me in life, I think of it in this terms. Imagine that, imagine you've been just notified this afternoon that you are set to inherit $100 million dollars. And all you got to do is drive down this highway and you're going to go get it. You're going to go pick it up from some long lost relative you didn't know that you had. And imagine if on the way there, imagine you, you blow a flat tire and you pull over on the side of the road. Now you would not stand there and start belly aching about that flat tire. You wouldn't stand there and have despair over the flat tire. You would get up and start walking. 
You'd hitchhike. You'd do whatever it took because you would want to get to that destination. How often do we not have our eyes on the fact that every single one of us who have received Jesus as our Savior, who have confessed our sins and he, because he is faithful to forgive us, that every one of us has a room being prepared for us, a place where there's no sin and no tears and that we won't have this sinful flesh anymore, that we will be glorified. How many of us woke up this morning being reminded of that? That's renewing our minds by going deeper into, into the gospel, offering our bodies to God, is our reasonable act of worship. Do you see the difference? It's not do these things and have. It is what has been done is now your possession. Let me show you another spot where this is. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3.18. The Apostle Paul has this in almost all of his letters, by the way. And when you start reading scripture and see that the imperatives, excuse me, that the indicatives always precede the imperatives, you will never look at scripture the same way. Some of you are looking at indicative, imperative, what are you talking about? All right, real quick, English class. By the way, if English is a second language, can I just say as an American, I am sorry. English does not make sense. I speak Spanish, not great, but I speak Spanish. And it's easier for me to teach my kids Spanish than it is for me to teach them English, even though English is my first language. English doesn't make sense. But here was one thing that makes sense. An indicative is a statement of fact. An imperative is a command. And in scripture, the indicative, the statement of fact, always precedes the command. What has been done for us gives us the ability to do for him. If you're, if you're tracking with me, say amen. amen. All right, good. 2 Corinthians 3.18, beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How are we being transformed in the kind of people who desire glory? We see God's glory that was given for us. See, in the gospel, we see a God who is better than all of our idols. And some of you might be thinking, sitting there and you say, idols? I don't have any idols. I don't have any little statues that I bow down to. Oh, brethren. Problem with most of us is our idols aren't necessarily bad statues. Our idols are good things that simply hang on to us. Maybe for you, money is your idol. You know, if I'll just get this taken care of or this done, then I'll start giving the way God has called me to. Oh, you know what? If I could just work about five or ten more hours this week, just for this year, things will be better later. Yeah, I know my family's struggling. My wife is at her wit's end. But I'm going to do this because this will really help my career. Maybe money is your idol. In the gospel, you can remember that you have a God who gives you more beauty and security than all of the riches on earth. Because devotion to money is not cured by a command. It is cured by the revelation of God. Maybe your, your romance is your idol. Maybe romance is your idol. Maybe you are single and you are desiring that spouse that is a great thing, but that is consuming your thoughts so much so that you're thinking about being with people that you know is not who God would have for you. Or maybe you say, well, you know, I know what God says about a spouse, and, but I'm going to start cutting some corners because I want that so badly. Or maybe you're married. Maybe you're married and your marriage is romance is not where it, you want it to be, or maybe where, frankly, it should be. 
And so instead of seeking out the body of Christ for help with that, you will turn to romance novels or movies or things to find and be consumed because that idol is just simply growing in you. What you can find in the gospel, a God whose love for you is sweeter, more comforting, more purifying than even the greatest romantic love. Because you realize that you're in the arms of, you're looking for in the arms of people you already have in the arms of a God who will always love you. I, can I just be real transparent? We're going to get to know each other here a little bit. Hopefully this won't be the last time I'm with you. Can I just tell you my idol? My idol is the opinion of others. Some of you are going like this. That's all right. I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it. Mine's the opinion of others. I've always struggled with that. I mean, I'll be honest. Right this morning, I want you guys to like me. But I have to realize that in the gospel, I see a God who spoke the very words of existence. The God that not just placed the stars where they are, the billions by billions and trillions, but he named each one of them. He makes the wind blow where it pleases. He holds the waves back. He brings us the heat and the, and the cold in winter. He knit me together in my mommy's womb. And he says, you are mine in the gospel. I find the only, all of the approval that I could ever need in the one that only matters. That's what the beauties of the gospel do. Because who, if God is for me, then who can be against me? That's what the beauties of the gospel are. How about another place? Titus chapter 2. Come on, y'all ready for a Bible study this morning? Take your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. If you're new, go ahead and get that app up. You can go ahead and pull it up to Titus chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and read it for you. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, we live in a day and time, can I just tell you? We live in a day and time, nobody likes rules. Nobody doesn't like rules. We don't like good old-fashioned discipleship. We don't like good old-fashioned spiritual disciplines. Probably because we're rejecting a generation. We're thought of that first and thought approval from God. And contrary to everything I'm preaching to you this morning. But we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because what does God say? That we are to be training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled. By the way, Watch the news for 10 minutes tonight. Don't you think a little, imagine the Christian witness of those of us who live self-controlled lives, upright. And what produces all that? Rules, discipline, accountability groups? No, for the grace of God has appeared. God has become so large in our heart that our passion for him begins to bring all other passions into captivity. The Puritans called this the explosive power of a new affection. Here's how I talk to him with, we have a lot of college students and a lot of teenagers at our church. And what we talk to them, how's the, here's the example that we use with them. Well, we're pretty good here, safe to talk about this. So, you know, you've got a couple college students. They're dating. They're maybe, you know, at mom and dad's house and they're downstairs in the basement and you know their things are happening in a way that you know shouldn't be happening and when I'm talking to these guys about this often these guys will say to me they'll say pastor Todd you don't understand man I'm like well yes I'm not that old I understand what you're talking about there's always this point where I come and there is no going back 
you know, I'm not sure what the terminology in my day, that was like a baseball diamond. Anyway, they're rounding these baseball diamonds. They say there's no way of going back. This is, this is the directory. God's made me this way. I can't help myself. And I said, okay, well, let's pretend that that's true. And let's pretend that your girlfriend is like SEAL Team 6 Navy SEAL dad. And all of a sudden, in that moment, when you think there is no going back, let's pretend he walks in the room all of a sudden. Is there any going back? And they say, yeah. And I say, why? And they're like, I want to live. <laughs> now, did that urge go away? No, it was replaced by a different, more powerful urge, and that's the urge to live. What's Timothy really, I mean, what's, Ty, what's Paul saying to Titus? The grace of God has appeared. Waypoint Church, you know today that in everything that you have in life is found in Jesus Christ because you were once lost, but now you're found. You were dead, but now you live because Christ lives in you. And the only way we develop the ability to say no to the temptations that have had a hold of us for so long, drugs, sex, alcohol, uh, selfishness, nationalistic pride, lack of love for the lost, all of the ways that we have that is freed because of what Jesus Christ did for us. That's that power of amazing grace. Because the problem is not that your sinful urges are too strong, it's that your passion for God is too weak. You see, you will be bring worldly passions into captivity and you'll live self-controlled, godly lives, having a passion for God, living on mission, helping the refugee and the orphans and the homeless and prisoners and unwed moms and at-risk teens. You will be glad to do that when you see that you were once lost, but now you're found. I mean, I even think about, you know, Jesus with the woman at the well. I will, I'll, I'll, you can go back and read that story later, but Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. I always want to like flip that. I want to, you know, like with people that I deal with, I want to be like, don't sin anymore, and now you won't be condemned. You know what's amazing power and amazing grace? Is that Jesus flips that. Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, because he was telling her to change, not in order to be accepted, but to change because she had been accepted. Isn't that beautiful? Because he knew that she'd have the ability to break free of the idolatry of adultery when she felt the embrace of God, who was better than all romance and sex. You see, God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin, not the reward from having liberated ourselves. God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from our sin, not the reward from having liberated ourselves. That's why I tell the high school, teenage, the teenage girl, who maybe has lost her virginity, I don't talk to her about the, the diseases and the shame and all those things. I remind her that a, there's a love from a God in heaven who came to her. And though her sins may be scarlet red, he has washed them white as snow. To the guy who's struggling with pornography, I don't just tell him about the destructiveness that that might bring upon his marriage or his internal life. I tell him there's a heavenly father who has set him apart for a purpose, sanctified and made him holy. And he can give himself to the one that only really matters. Or maybe you're somebody here and you've just failed in ministry or you failed in your job. 
Maybe you've had just some destructive things happen. I can say to you that Jesus looks at you like he looked at Peter. And he says, Satan has sifted you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. I've removed my shame. And Waypoint Church, you people here, you are my rock of who I'm going to build this church upon. Because our faith is what has been done, and it gives us the ability to what we need to do. The last thing, I'll just say this. I didn't even ask Pastor Lawrence how long I had this morning. Last thing I'll say, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You can read it. If you can turn it quick to it, write it down. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. By the way, you noticing what preceded all of those things? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's Paul trying to produce here? The Apostle Paul is trying to produce generosity in the early church. A lot of pastors are scared to talk about money. They get all nervous. People don't like to talk about money. Well, the New Testament did. Jesus talked about it more, but more than just about any other subject. Certainly he did more than heaven or hell. Those of you, if you maybe grew up in the Baptist tradition, you talked about money using guilt. You know, you'd say things like, how can you sit here in your comfortability and your air conditioning and your two cars when there are 3,000 unreached people groups out there? Baptists have the guilt thing down pretty good. If you grew up in a charismatic kind of Pentecostal vein, you're not off the hook either. You, you got your own way of doing this. You don't use guilt, you use greed. You say things like, hey, you, you want God to bless you? Give to this church and I'll turn your Toyota into a BMW. But you know what God does? God uses grace. God uses grace. God says, do you remember that once you were poor, but I have made you rich? That you were dead in your sin and trespasses, but God. The two greatest words I could ever heard. But God sent his only begotten son that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let me just tell you, that transformed a selfish, greedy, idolatrous heart of mine into one that's great joy to give to others. Maybe you're having problems naturally forgiving your spouse or forgiving a coworker. It's not because of their great sin. It's because you are failing to grasp the power of the great, amazing grace. Maybe you're not naturally pouring yourself and giving yourself to others. It's because you've forgotten that Jesus poured himself out for you and drips sweats, drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, God, if there's any other way to take this cup from me, let it pass now. And God went silent and he went to the grave for the joy that was set before him. You ever thought about what joy was set before Jesus? He was the joint heir. He was the, the son and the Godhead. He was the creator. He had everything. You know what the joy that was set before him? What the one thing Jesus ha didn't have before the cross that he had afterwards? You? Me? If that doesn't leave you walking out here feeling 10 pounds lighter and feeling more joy in your heart is that the God of his universe gave himself for you and poured out himself. How about your passion for missions? 
you see Josh or Pastor Lawrence come by and they say, man, I got an idea, and you're kind of like, hey, I got to go real quick? That's because you have to realize that the fire to do in the Christian life is soaked in the fuel of God's love for what's been done. Go to the cross of Christ, all you that want to be delivered from the power of selfishness. Go and see what a price was paid there to provide a ransom for your soul. See how the Son of God gave himself for you to learn to, and learn to think of it no small thing to give yourself for others. I hope you see the point in all of this that I've been saying today. Temptation, radical generosity, audacious faith, commitment to the Great Commission, fighting sin, fighting the enemy, all flows not from trying harder, not from doing more, but resting in what's been done. One of my preaching heroes is a guy named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. By the way, he's got that preaching accent too, like that, that accent that just sounds awesome, you can just listen to it all the time. And he said there was a great debate in his time of preaching. About 56 years ago, there was a great debate. Is a sermon a theological lecture? Or is a, a sermon a practical help for the congregation? Can I just tell you a little something? There's a huge debate going on about that in the evangelical world today. What goes, what goes around comes around. Nothing new under the sun, Scripture says. Here's the great thing that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, is that it's not neither one of them. Because the purpose of a sermon is not for you to run out and do more. The purpose of a sermon is not for you to go out and learn more. The purpose of, you, of a sermon is for hopefully you will take the pen, you will put it down, and you will look up and you will say, thank you, Lord. Because the point here this morning, Waypoint Church, is not for me to give you a list of what more you need to do for this church or for your God. The point of this, is Waypoint, is for me to remind you what has been done. Soak in the gospel. Soak in the fact of amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. And the earth shall, shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God, who called me here below, will be forever mine. Soak in that. Because the ultimate test of your Christianity, the ultimate test of real spirituality, is the measure of our amazement in the grace of God. And that's where that amazing power comes from. To progress is to always go back to the beginning. And church, that's what we're going to do today. That's what we come to the table. That's why we come to the table is to remember what God has done for us. And so if you're here this morning and you're like, you know what? I've never experienced this. I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. I've never experienced that amazing grace that, that all of you seem to be talking about and understand. Can I tell you that when, when this, is, this is given out, the bread and the cup, I would respectfully ask that you would let it pass by you, that you would not take of it. The Bible says that this is for those of us who have been born again, those of us who have trusted Christ. Because I'm going to tell you that what you need is not the bread and the cup. 
What you need is what they represent. And what you can receive today is much better than a little plain cracker. What you can can receive is the bread of life. And so in this time, what I would ask is that I know that some of you are feeling that Holy Spirit who who is speaking to you, maybe for the first time, and saying, trust me. Trust me. The rest of us, Waypoint Church, this is an opportunity for us to grow in the Christian life by going back to the beginning.